We go to Wellington for Midweek Media Watch with Colin Peacock. Good evening. Hi, Karen. First up, sports broadcaster Martin Devlin. He's got his foot back in the door. Yes, indeed. That's um, Martin Devlin of News Talk ZB, formerly Radio Sport for many years. In fact, they named his own show after him, the uh, Devlin Radio Show, DRS as it's called. He was stood down back in late May, so a bit of background to this. Uh, Stuff broke the news that he'd aimed a blow uh, inaccurately. He'd missed a junior colleague, and this was actually uh, during a show that he was broadcasting, and this had happened about 10 days earlier. Um, And uh, Stuff reported that this altercation happened in the kind of open plan office that's shared by ZB and the New Zealand Herald in Auckland, so, you know, probably would have been fairly widely witnessed. And then after Stuff broke that story, a statement from Martin Devlin himself was issued uh, and published by NZME in which he confirmed that this had happened, Martin Devlin, and also it said that he'd sent inappropriate messages, as they were called, to other colleagues. Uh, He acknowledged his behaviour was wholly unacceptable and he was getting help with um, anger and other issues. But he said he'd been allowed to go back on air, uh, which he then did. He appeared on the air the following Saturday as scheduled and made a bit of a statement to his audience about it and said he wanted to kind of draw a line under it. But then after that, further details were reported actually by the Herald, which is part of NZME, that there were other complaints about him from at least two other people um, and that the victim, the person that that was the victim of this uh, missed punch, wasn't actually happy with the internal investigation and the way it had been uh, uh, done. So Martin Devlin was stood down again and a more thorough kind of external review carried out. Earlier this month, stuff reported uh, that Martin Devlin had been overheard in a cafe uh, saying he would soon be back on the air. And then yesterday, stuff reported that uh, an email to staff uh, had leaked out to NZME staff saying that Martin Devlin would be back uh, on air in due course. And today... Uh, the story moved on again. Uh, stuff Simon Plum reported that uh, he understood that the junior colleague that uh, had been the target of that missed punch had actually left NZME uh, but also signed a non-disclosure agreement in exchange for a settlement. Um, so the headline on that story was uh, Martin Devlin's young victim leaves NZME as punch-throwing radio host keeps his job, um, which is quite a headline and uh, quite a situation. Have the NZME given any reason as to why uh, he's been given a green light to return or what those allegations were in regard to inappropriate messages to other colleagues? No, uh, not at all. In fact, um, the, the leaked email that, that leaked out, this is from the chief editor or managing editor at NZME, Shane Curry, telling staff that an in, the independent investigation, the second one, into the latest allegations had found neither complaint was substantiated. Um so this is confusing because without any documents or evidence or any knowledge of this independent investigation or its terms of reference or anything, um, the questions, you know, are sort of were these complaints just chucked out or found to be not true, not credible, unproven, denied by Martin Devlin? We just don't know. So without that knowledge, you know, we can't really know what conclusions were reached. And right at the first stage when he first, uh, the story broke and the prepared statement that, it, that obviously had ready, uh, to announce that he would be back, that referred to caveats about his return to work. So you know he was kind of on on notice, but we don't. That's never been declared either. So yeah, there's there's lots of questions raised by you know what's been reported so far. But you know there could well be more in coming days. And this comes at a time, of course, Colin, when the culture of media companies is under greater scrutiny. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, uh, stuff. Alison Moore and her team, the Me Too team that's been reporting, they've done a fair amount on the media and the entertainment industries. MediaWorks, another media company, 
has a, an ongoing review by QC Maria Dew of its workplace culture because of uh, claims of harassment and bullying there. Uh, those mainly centred around its music radio station. Some employees at The Rock uh, got stood down. I think they were um, later said to be cleared by an investigation. But while this wider one by the QC Maria Dew was going on, and, and that we don't know uh, in public what the nature of those allegations was either. So it's, it's kind of not at all clear that for all this uh, examination and all these sort of tests of what conduct's acceptable and what isn't, um, what, where the line is at our media companies and also that 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 aspect of if 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 it's all correct this non-disclosure agreement in the case of Martin Devlin and the person who's now left the company if if indeed that's correct uh, that's a bit worrying because you know media companies demand and expect uh, transparency from others you think of reporting of politics all that stuff at at parliament the Trevor Mallard situation all of that you know they they want uh, disclosure. They th- say it's in the public interest, but the media companies themselves, you know, don't seem keen to follow it. When you know, I guess they've got high-profile people and you know, big big media brands. They they need to protect. Maybe that comes first. You know, hard to know without knowing the specifics. But um, you know, it was pretty clear. Stuff complained that you know they'd been asking about that very first incident for for seven or eight days before uh, and getting no response from NZME about um, what Martin Devlin had done in the studio uh, and yet they had a statement ready to go as soon as stuff eventually published its story without NZ Meek's comment so you know when you consider them in the past they've also had the Tony Veach incident where he was brought back on air yeah I think um, I think this this doesn't reflect well with their public that that care about more than you know what's on the air and their favorite host being there. And now you want to uh, talk about something that you mentioned on Media Watch on the weekend, and this was the the sudden pullout of U.S. troops in Afghanistan. Yeah, I thought this was a really big story. Um, you know, the war's gone on for 20 years. New Zealand had thousands of personnel serving there. Ten of them died. Not much in it in our media apart from, you know, this, this very sudden pullout. The American president said they'd leave by September. They left without warning, possibly for security reasons, last weekend, leaving only a handful of troops. So effectively, that's it. Their so-called forever war is over. Uh, Q&A's Jack Tame. Uh, TVNZ's Jack Tame, uh, he thought the same as, as me. I think he tweeted out that it's fascinating to see how little the media has covered this. Um, it's the conflict of the century so far, he says. You know, news coverage and analysis has been sparse. And then his show Q&A, um, you know, was actually on here at the same time as Media Watch. What did he have to say on Q&A about it? Or I guess he didn't watch it. No, well, <laughs> this is why, you know, at the same time I was on the air saying, well, not much in the media about it, you know, there, there they are actually doing it. They interviewed the former Minister of Defence, Wayne Mapp, who, you know, it's interesting that he's one of few... New Zealand former ministers who's prepared and willing to speak about, you know, things that happened in his time in, in office. He had to front up to that Operation Burnham inquiry. So I guess with Afghanistan, he kind of had no choice. But he's also written about it on the Pundit blog and, and other places. So he fronted up on Q&A and said, look, it wasn't a mistake to go into um, Afghanistan in 2001 after Al-Qaeda, you know, which, you know, of course, the American-led effort after after the Twin Towers atrocity. Uh, he said it wasn't wrong to go as part of an international coalition, but he said, yeah, look, clearly the nation building after getting rid of the Taliban uh, was not a success. Uh, but he also made um, this interesting revelation. Well, in hindsight, you might say yes. I remember in 2009 at the, the various ministers' conferences at NATO and in Europe that we were told that the 
the surge, which had been engineered by President Obama, would take longer than we thought to be effective. That was the military advice we were getting. But no one actually thought they could actually stay as long as the military said we needed to. Yeah, so that, that's really interesting. He's saying that that was never reported to the public back in 2009, and that was before New Zealand soldiers started to die. But sort of shades of the Vietnam situation in there where, if what he's saying is right, you know, the US and their allies kind of sat on information that, that suggested they really couldn't achieve their objectives, but, you know, had to carry on for years anyhow because, you know, they couldn't get an acceptable deal with their enemy or, um, you know, that they had to be seen to be, you know, steady on America's promise. They couldn't just back down, uh, even though they, they knew they couldn't win. Why do you think the media here was so tardy in reporting this, uh, just not prepared for geopolitics on a weekend? <laughs> Possibly that. It is possible that having said, you know, Biden did make this big announcement that they would leave by September the 11th, you know, the 20th anniversary of the, the Twin Towers. But then I think later he said, look, well, we should be gone by the end of August. So possibly media, you know, worldwide, not just New Zealand media, we're, we're planning to have a look at this, you know, this 20-year this war, what was it all about? You know, will America ever go into any of these, you know, open-ended commitments ever again? You know, these sorts of huge issues. Uh, so, yeah, possibly they're getting that, really, that stuff ready, and they were caught out as much as anyone by that sudden pullout. But we really could use, I think, some good retrospective on quite how this turned into a 20-year thing and what will now happen to that country, which has been invaded in the last 200 years by you know the Great Britain, the Soviet Union, and now the US-led forces, and now once again find itself plunged into civil war. The BBC have a bit of a tradition of doing these, um, these kind of respect, uh, retrospective documentary series with really important players in it. They did great ones after the um, war in former Yugoslavia, the Iraq war. Uh, they made one about Afghanistan after 10 years, but that was mainly focused on the NATO soldiers that fought there. But I do hope they do a kind of full retrospective on, um, on that whole Afghan story because, you know, New Zealand's definitely part of it. It's serious news, Colin, when Euro 2020 was all over the place. Yeah, but funny that, eh? I mean, a European football tournament, you're usually this European, it's big with sports fans and football fans, but not here. I guess the fact England did so well and we're still kind of part of the news anglosphere, I think it shows that. And I'm, I'm beginning to think that that final um, and what led up to it, England-Italy at Wembley Stadium, might have been the most intensely covered sports event Ever anywhere, you had England getting to the final and throwing off all their past failures. It's, you know the blogs, so you know it's, it's front page news in Britain as well as back page news feeding into the world's news system. Then of course all the social media stuff, even the songs, um, you know, uh, old and new that get uh, reprised and heard out here. Football's coming home and all that jazz. And then of course all this playing out. In a COVID environment, you know, the whole tournament actually took part in 11 countries, which I didn't actually realise till yesterday. Um, so all of that. And then, of course, with the British situation, you know, the politicians trying to ride on this, a kind of uh, the, the team taking an anti-racist stance, uh, you know, and then politicians criticising that. All that has come back to bite them. So a whole lot of stuff, the culture war, sports, politics, everything, I think probably the most intense sports thing we've ever seen. And how have the media reacted to England's defeat? 
Well, the British media didn't react so well, and some of that leaked out. There was one particular headline on the Herald site, which was about uh, the dirty, cheating Italian assassins, which I thought was ridiculous. All they were really talking about was the kind of rule-bending gamesmanship for which um, Italian teams are a little bit notorious, but that's all a legit part of the game. Um, do those then, two things go together, rule bending and gamesmanship? I think they do. I think they do. <laughs> it's it's sort of anti-gamesmanship, but that's what they call it. But also uh, the fact that, you know, as it happened, I watched that penalty shootout. There were five, best of five. England had five penalty takers. The three that missed were all young black players. And now when this happens, even in routine, you know, uh, professional Premier League games, black players just get a whole lot of abuse on social media from anonymous people. And it's a trend that has been of concern for some time in the game. But uh, when it happened at England, you know, I thought this is only a matter of time before this becomes a story. And sure enough, it did. So you have now the British Football Association saying, look, these platforms like Facebook and Instagram, you know, as, as one person put it, you could have an intern with a smartphone and a delete button who could weed out the stuff following the players' accounts. So the likes of Marcus Rashford and, you know, that 19-year-old Bukayo Saka Arsenal player, you know, he's a teenager and he was getting racist abuse just because he missed a penalty, you know. Uh, you know, the width of half a post was the difference between England winning and losing, and none of this stuff would be in the news if they'd won. But, yeah, the weirdness of our times and the racism they focused. But uh, the, the the media, the mainstream sports media, has rounded. They support the team. They say they're proud of them. If anything, they say the politicians, who some of whom, to score political points, uh, actually undercut their anti-racist stance, the taking of the knee on the field, which they've been doing since um, the Black Lives Matter movement erupted. Uh, you know, now you've got the, the bandwagon riding politicians um, who who are now putting on the shirt. In one case, I think the treasurer had bought a brand new shirt and the tag was still showing as he tried to do a social media post to get behind the team. They were the ones who were saying it was uh, gesture politics and the team shouldn't be doing it. So at least three or four prominent uh, politicians and Boris Johnson's cabinet. So, yes, those who tried to uh, uh, ride the bandwagon once the England team were doing well are now suffering the consequences of, uh, you know, apparently contributing to the kind of racist backlash that the uh, the, the players have, have um, suffered from just idiots online. Now, I see there's a petition at the moment uh, for a lifetime ban from football matches for racists. It's neared about a million signatures in just 24 hours, and it's a proposal from fans which follows abuse online and offline aimed at England players uh, after this defeat in, in uh, the Euro 2020, and they just won't be able to go to any football match. I think that's a good one. Yeah, I think that's a good idea, because it's entirely possible, you'd think, if the, you know that these platforms can sort out things for for, uh, you know, decency purposes and for copyright, then you'd think it shouldn't be beyond the akin to, um, you know, to isolate the accounts that are, that are do, doing this stuff. And yeah, if, the, if the supporters themselves police it online or help to by the means of the thing you've mentioned there, then that, that's, all, that's all good. And the fans' reaction, the England fans' reaction before the game, you know, breaking into Wembley, and then uh, afterwards, that's been making headlines too, but not in a good way, unfortunately. No, and you do wonder whether it's, you know, a handful of people, of course, these days, you see those scenes and, uh, you know, they're amplified and it looks like thousands upon thousands of people. It could have just been handfuls within a stadium that was mostly well-behaved of 66,000. But I remember this from the last time England hosted that tournament. England played Germany, got knocked out. There was a lot 
lot of bitterness, a lot of drunkenness at late at night, just people who couldn't handle it. Uh, there were some attacks on um, supposedly German people in the streets and German cars. So with that in mind, I did love this comedy announcement that was made before uh, the final. This was um, a UK-based Italian comedian guy called Sam Picone, and uh, he made this statement on behalf of UK-based Italians uh, before the match. Please. Please do not damage Italian independent businesses. And in exchange, we will allow you to destroy the following restaurants. Bella Italia, Ask Italian, Spaghetti House, Zizi, Domino's. <laughs> Sorry, even just the word, it makes me, come si dice, indigestione. Papa John's, Pizza Hut, and any pizzeria that has even a trace of pineapple in the kitchen. <laughs> Domino's. Yeah, I love that. So he's reading out basically all the chain stores that you see on every high street and say, yeah, you go for Domino's, go for Pizza Hut, trash those, we're fine with that. And the funny thing was, it's a brilliant little video because what he did was he delivered it. Like, do you remember that thing with Ronaldo when he sat in front of the board with all the sponsors' names? They had the Coca-Cola bottles. Yeah, and so he right. moved them to the side and said, don't drink that, drink water. So uh, this guy, Sam, he sat down, did the same thing, moved the Coca-Cola bottles aside, put down two bottles of Moretti beer, moved the, uh, the cans to one side and put down two cans of Italian tomatoes and then read that little thing. And at the very end, after he'd finished his plea, he clutched a bottle of um, olive oil and took a big slug out of that for the, for the final shot with all the sponsors' logos in the back. So, yeah, very well done. You'd have to say there's nothing like Italian food, though, is there, when no, it's well done. No, and they like it in England, too. I can, uh, I can assure you of that. Who were you picking to take out the Euro final? Oh, I couldn't, I couldn't, I just couldn't say. I mean, I thought the Italians looked pretty good. But the whole English thing, the whole woe and the 50 years of pain and all that jazz, it is such, it is such an anchor on them. So I didn't know. But they looked like a different team, so who knew? But I think in the end, you know, they'll get over it. And it was a spectacle to get to a final play at home. Should have been fun, but just weird how literally the width of a post on one of those penalty kicks mean there's all this recrimination and upset. And, and you know, none of that I don't think would be happening if they were still drinking and dancing in the streets having won the thing after all those years. Oh, absolutely not. Hey, Colin, thank you very much. We'll talk to you in a couple of weeks' time. Sure thing.